Welcome to episode 17 of Fringe with Benefits. I can't believe we're already at episode 17. I'm your host, Stacy, the super average, like almost freaking housewife nowadays, sitting here all, all arthritic in the Pacific Northwest where it's cold and damp and moist. Hopefully, like your turkey, because it's turkey day tomorrow as I'm recording this. You probably won't hear from it until you're like well into your leftovers or well into after your leftovers. Uh, like I said, I'm your host, Daisy, and I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. Okay, let's get on with it. Let's get down to business and knock that out of the way. Follow me on all my social medias. We got the Fringe with Benefits Facebook page. We have Inward Survival's Facebook page. My Facebook fan page is at Stacey Leosorio, and my Twitter is at Stacey Fringe. If you go follow that page because it's real sad over there, I'll follow you back from my personal page. My Instagram is at Golden underscore Valkyrie underscore, and YouTube is at Golden Valkyrification. Inward Survival's website is inwardsurvival.com, and there are ways to donate and a blog to follow over there. And make sure you share the show. If you like it, share it with people. If you think it's funny, freaking share it. And visit the show's homepage on Anchor and other ways to support the show. That'll be in the show notes. And we have our first subscribers, like I keep mentioning. Thank you so much to them. I'm not really in it for that, but it it really helps to motivate me to want to do this more often because... Although it's just a hobby, it's uh, everybody likes money, and I could do things with that. And I'm trying to raise donations. So thank you to our subscribers. I really, really appreciate it. If you listen on Apple iPods, go over <laughs> Apple iPods. If you go over on Apple Podcasts, go give me a rating and review because that really helps. And um, make sure you hit me up because I want to know my audience. Okay. Hello, dudes and dudettes. Welcome to the accountability segment. This accountability segment is brought to you by Shame Spiral 2020. I named it after my personal experience this year. I get ashamed of being like depressed and I, I take shame when I become, or I, I guess I should say I experience shame when I become like frozen in my tracks. And 2020 has been a great year of self-evaluation for me because of this particular situation. I'm very aware of a few of my thinking mistakes. I, I have quite a few of them, and I'm learning of new ones all the time. And I look a lot at the decisions in my past that I have hindered me professionally and personally. And I'm realizing that we should never get too comfortable and always use those moment, moments of comfort and security to push us to prepare and be willing to look ahead. Not to obsess about, you know, the future, but to actually to, to visualize what you want for yourself and for your family, to say, five, ten years from now. Last week was super fun. Um, sorry about not recording for y'all. I think I got salmonella from my favorite snack, which is dried mango from Mexico. <laughs> it threw me for such a loop, and I couldn't record last week. In fact, episode 16, I was actively in my sickness and I thought that you know I'd be over it and be able to record the following weekend but I really just wasn't in it. We had a mega storm and lost power for nearly a full 24 hours and that was fun and a learning experience. It kind of seems to be like you know when things are in the shit and you know it rains it pours type of thing well that was exactly that storm and and learning to to cope 
with minor inconveniences like that, which wasn't a minor inconvenience. It was a pretty major inconvenience because we had to change everything because our, our well pump runs off of our power. And thank goodness we had a generator and we were able to keep our refrigerator and our freezer from, you know, um, not keeping all of our food frozen. So nothing went to waste, which is awesome. But making sure that you, you know, methodically figure out how many times you can flush the toilet or how you're going to manage to cook dinner that night. Those are things that you think about that you don't necessarily think about when you have power. So really made me thankful to, to the power company, number one, for coming out there and fixing because the entire region was out of power. It was crazy. So that was, that was nuts. I'm figuring out that every day I'm grateful for my naked and afraid challenges because I can always put myself back there at any time. Naked, chopping down trees, gathering wood for the boma, barefoot, so no shoes, no work gloves, that gets to be pretty tough. Boiling every drop of water to drink, sleeping in the dirt with the scorpions and the spiders. It was lovely. It really, really was. So as I said here, warm, clothed, with clean water to drink and a shelter that I didn't have to build myself, I can feel grateful and I realized that I let comfort convince myself that I have any real reason to feel ashamed. I should feel inspired every day by myself and by my circumstances. This week on Stacy's Socials, I'm going to talk about something that I really like to talk about, something I really, really despise, but it's something that everybody, I think, really likes to talk about because everybody has been a victim to this, if you're on the internet at all. So this week, I want to talk about people who troll other people on the internet. Let's start with what constitutes a troll. According to the Urban Dictionary, trolling is the deliberate act of making random, unsolicited, and or controversial comments on various internet forums with the intent to provoke an emotional knee-jerk reaction from an unsuspecting readers to engage in a fight or an argument. This can run the gamut from leaving negative comments about someone's appearance to insulting someone's work to writing hateful, politically charged, or even threatening messages. These comments are designed to make you feel bad about yourself, and the results have been seen to be, can be fatal to some people because there is an increase in suicide rates based on online bullying. In my opinion... There are like three types of trolls. You've got the stranger, which are the ones that the article was talking about. Those are the ones who, you know, they do it all day, every day. They hop into forums. They say something really disgusting just to get a huge reaction out of people. Or they even follow famous people and get probably get notifications when these people post so just so they could get on there and say something really nasty in a way to dox or discredit them. And it's kind of crazy because if you follow some famous people and you see some of the people, you know, when they post, there's a lot of people that they make sure that they're there for each post because they're pretty much sometimes the same people. At least this is what I've seen on Twitter. And then second, we have the friend. And I'm using the term loosely because they're, you know, they're just people that you maybe have added on your social media or someone who follows you, but you don't really know them. And they are the ones that kind of, they have the memes about them. They like to pop in only to react or engage when they disagree or if they want to say something snarky or negative. And then third, the real friend who's really, really a friend and that you know, and there is positive interaction as well as negative interaction. 
And this person likes to challenge you, and it's usually political differences, I'm noticing. So the whole time I've been using social media, I've always put up some pretty strict boundaries and policies with myself because I can see like how I can react and how I feel after, you know, arguing with people online. So I have these boundaries that if people incessantly harp on me and if they can't, you know, just scroll past something that they don't like and remain friends with me or unfollow me or unfriend me, people have been known to do that. Um, that's fine. Uh, but if you like incessantly comment and it's kind of like harassing and I, I go to social media not to be harassed. And so I, you know, I block people. Well, what if the person like on number three is a friend or a family member and you absolutely love them except how you interact on Facebook? Do you block them? Well, I have, I even blocked my own dad and he passed away and he's still blocked. (laughs) But And I've experienced blocking and unblocking friends. But yeah, no big deal. I'm pretty much, you know, I choose what I want to see on there. I am very aware of how I feel when I use it. And so if things get heated, I don't want to be there. I don't want to feel anxiety when I'm on my social media. That's insane. So, you know, that's, that's pretty much what I do to deal with that one. But according to Forbes magazine, they say that there are 10 tips with dealing with trolls and they're really good and I want to share that with you. It talks about having an online reputation and creating a thriving online community that is friendly and engaging and that's how I want my page to be. You have to effectively handle these trolls then and these are the 10 ways you can accomplish that. Number one, establish a policy. Uh, Ding ding, put up boundaries. When dealing with trolls, the first step is to establish a policy for user comments. These policies should clearly detail what kind of comments are allowed and outlined in your website and social media accounts. Number two, ignore them. Trolls want attention. They want to get you angry, frustrated, or uncomfortable, no matter how difficult it might be. Simply ignoring a troll could your best tactic because when they don't get a response, they'll most likely go away. According to Pew Research Center, 60% of respondents opted to ignore online harassment. That's a really good policy. Or not to read it sometimes, like if you can help it. Number three, make let light. I don't like how they wrote this. Make let light of the situation. Make light of the situation? That makes sense. So I guess Rachel Wissuri states on Social Media Examiner, humor is one of the best ways to handle trolls. And that's absolutely true. When you make light of these other people's comments, you simultaneously acknowledge and diffuse the situation. That's what Rachel says. Number four, unmask them. Tim Dowling from The Guardian says, Trolls thrive on anonymity. By taking away that power, you may take that think that troll think twice about leaving nasty comments on your website. That's not necessarily true because they're not always anonymous. You could also turn your rage into pity, he says. Number five, don't provide a platform. If you host your own website, you don't have to approve offensive comments. I don't even turn on comments on my website because I know it looks like shit sometimes. <laughs> Because I'm still learning. Um, You can also delete these comments. You can disable commenting. That's what I do. Number six, use moderators and online tools. That's fantastic. And this is pretty much for professionals. What I think is the best thing to do is to, you know, keep your own side of the street clean. Try not to, like, annoy people on their posts. I mean, sometimes you want to say something, and by all means... But if you're commenting on every single thing you disagree with, you're going to be really busy and it's not a really great use of your time. 
I think how we engage on social media is very important because we we want to be seen as kind and professional, or, or you don't. And I think that that's maybe a reason for anonymity, but I want to be seen as kind and honest. I've always taken pride in my true honesty, even though it's gotten me into trouble. It's always had my back in one shape or form or another. I don't even know if I said that right. And I think our online presence and our online space is is how we want it to be because we're the one that has to read it, consume it, and be present for it. Those other people are like fly by night, you know, and they're spreading negativity and discontent. And unless it's a constrictive criticism spoken with reason and logic and friendliness and and camaraderie in some shape or form, I don't think that it's worth anybody's time, especially not mine. And those are the boundaries that I put up on my social media. I don't deal with people calling my messenger. I don't deal with people leaving nasty comments or mean comments. I will delete and block. I don't have any problem doing that, even with people that I know. So, you know, I I state it. I put it out there. I should put it as my description, but I don't want that to be my description you know, and it's a far cry better than me calling my friends the C word or me telling somebody to go boink their mom or me. Um, I don't know. I have a hot ass temper. I tell you what. And when people get brazen and brave online, I, it just, it's enraging. And so I don't want to feel that. I, I spend a lot of time keeping those feelings at bay and it takes a lot of practice. So that's what I got for Stacy Socials. I mean, I am enjoying my time there. I love people so much. I'm excited about our future. I'm, I'm a little scared, but I'm not that scared. And I want to spread love and kindness and honesty and truth and wisdom. It matters to me. So let's move on to our viral corner. This week's viral video is to die for, literally. Um, actually, I have two things for you. I wanted to talk about that old dude in Florida, the retiree that wrestled that alligator for the puppy. I have a CNN article that's got the, it's in the show notes, everything's in the show notes, everything that I refer to. So there's a video of him like hopping into this pond, getting his little doggy, and he's got a stogie in his mouth, doesn't lose his cigar, and he just manhandles this they look like, you know, kind of a younger, a younger alligator. And my dogs are barking. That's lovely. So anyways, I'm, I'm using CNN because I think that they could actually report honestly on this one. They don't have anything to lose by lying. So we're going to go ahead and see how they do. It says in a dramatic encounter recorded by surveillance cameras, a Florida man chased an alligator underwater and rescued his three-month-old puppy from the jaws of death. So that's something new I didn't know. I didn't know it was a surveillance camera. How come we don't get to see? I'm going to I'm gonna watch the video in a second, but I haven't seen a version in which he's running into the water. It always starts when he's in the water, actually doing the wrestling. So he's got this three-month-old puppy, tiny little thing. And this guy's name is Richard Wilbanks, 74 of Estero. And he ran into his backyard pond, wrestled the gator, and pried its jaws open to free Gunner. 
his Cavalier King Charles Spanier. And there's a picture of Gunner, and he's so cute. You can't really see in the video how absolutely adorable this dog is. So he says that they were just walking out by the pond, and it came out of the water like a missile because they're quick. He said he never thought an alligator could be that fast that it was so quick. He said that his adrenaline kicked in, and he just jumped into the water, which is amazing. So this alligator snatches his little puppy, which no doubt he totally loves because, you know, him. they're probably homies, you know, and that's probably all he's got. Basically, this alligator drags the puppy underwater, so if he didn't act quick... He was going to drown for one. And so the puppy had some injuries, but he made it. He said that holding the alligator wasn't so tough, but prying open the jaws was extremely hard. So you definitely see the guns bulging on this old fella. He said his hands were chewed up and he had to go to the doctor for a tetanus. Gunner had one puncture wound in his belly and did find after a trip to the veterinarian's office. This rescue south of Fort Myers was caught on camera because the partnership between Florida Wildlife, Federa- <laughs> Florida Wildlife Federation and the F-Stop Foundation. He said they live, oh I'm sorry, Meredith Budd of the Wildlife Federation told them, we live on a shared landscape. We don't just want to tolerate wildlife, but rather we want to thrive with wildlife on a shared landscape. Wilbanks agrees with that mission. He doesn't want the alligator removed from the pond or destroyed. He says they're a part of nature and a part of our lives. And I think that's amazing. So he still takes Gunner walking, but he now keeps the puppy on a leash and 10 feet from the pond's edge. Our pets are just like family to us, he said. Absolutely. They really are. They're the sweetest. And he is so brave and so manly. And I just wanted to give him props because I thought that was like the best news all week. The other thing I wanted to talk about is, so these wildlife officials were flying around the Utah desert and they were looking for bighorn sheep. They were doing a bighorn sheep survey from the air, which is awesome. It was kind of what I went to school to do, is wildlife biology, but didn't get that far. I, I linked below SL Trib, a Salt Lake Tribune, it must be, dot com. It says Utah's mystery desert sculpture art or graffito. So these guys are flying above trying to count bighorn sheep and they see this silver obelisk just in the middle of the desert. And so they land and they check it out and it's crazy. It's like um, space audit, 2001 space, 2000 and is it 2001 or 2021 space odyssey? <laughs> and it looks pretty impressive from the very first video that I saw. And then I, I got on Reddit to, you know, just look at and see if I could find out anything more because people started going out there. And even though they didn't release the location of this place, there are people out there filming like crazy. And there was this one dude on Reddit who posted a video of him up close and you could see like the rivet holes, you could see the seam lines, you could see where they actually had cut the rock to fit it in there. And obviously somebody put it in there. It wasn't put there by some kind of aliens force or anything. So what the Salt Lake Tribune wanted to say about it is that sometime in 2016, one or more artists carried well over 100 pounds of stainless steel, cut a hole in the sandstone with a rock saw, and erected a three-sided obelisk beneath a narrow pour-off. So this sculpture was carefully placed away from roads and out of sight from any vantage point. And so only some people knew where it was. And for four years, it sat there. A few wandering hikers or cowboys happened to stumble across it, but they kept the discovery to themselves, which is crazy because I probably would have told somebody or something, but that'll change. Like I said last week, when these biologists doing the bighorn sheep survey 
for Utah Division of Wildlife Resources spotted the structure. They posted all that stuff online. So it also, they really teased it that it was put there by aliens. And so all these um, reporting agencies or, you know, journalists were saying, you know, this is crazy, you know, is have the aliens been here? And they really pushed it that way. It was covered in publications from South China Morning Post to New York Times to Al Jazeera and has drawn comments from all corners, including Stephen Colbert's Late Show, which... Anyways, it's, um, it's reminiscent of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. And Colbert says in his monologue, I don't really care what he has to say, but let's see what he says. What could it mean? Is it aliens making first contact? Is it a site-specific art installation that examines the dynamic tension between man and nature? Or is it a really poorly installed stainless steel backsplash? Utah is the ultimate open concept kitchen. Haha, <laughs> super funny. Let's see who else went out there. Ryan Quiggle and Elliot Evans, two students at Brigham Young, drove for hours to reach the obelisk to make it uh, back to their graveyard shift at their missionary training center in Provo. And here's a picture of them standing next to it. He says it was definitely aliens. And he was joking, obviously, wrapping on the foam inside. Interesting. The sculpture is nine feet, seven inches. And there are three sides just under two feet wide joined with rivets. There is a ribbon of silicone cock that runs around in space. <laughs> he says that it looks like it could have been assembled by a secret sing, single person, said Brad Zerko, a 30-year-old engineer from San Jose, California. He was on vacation in the area. He saw the news, and he decided to go find it. He said that each of the pieces could have been carried in separately. And so I don't know if it's illegal. Oh, okay, it says Bureau of Land Management said that the piece was illegally installed, but they have no plans to remove it. So I wonder if this guy can get into trouble. He probably is going to have to stay underground because he could get into trouble. This BLM spokeswoman, Kimberly Finch, says that she can assure the public that we aren't going to be hasty in our decision about the future of the structure. We're also enjoying the conversations, the inspiration, the fun that people are having with it. We completely encourage that. We hope people will continue to have fun with it and be safe as far as assessing the site. The agency is investigating how the obelisk got there. Ordinarily, any moving of earth or placing fixtures on public land requires a review under the National Environment Policy Act. Last summer, someone illegally erected a political flag over U.S. Highway 40, which BLM took down promptly, according to Finch. Even if the obelisk qualifies as art, the BLM does, doesn't want to see similar installations elsewhere without proper approval. And any of you all know that the BLM is the Bureau of Land Management. Finch says that she doesn't want people to be inspired to do this on their own, and there's a process, and it has to be safe. And some critics have called it litter and glorified vandalism, and and multiple visitors were worried that it was going to be marked up by graffiti, which some asshole is going to come along and try to write his freaking name on it. You know what I mean? So anyways, a historian, Patricia Limerick, says the object is art and should be taken seriously. To her, it fits into Utah's tradition of land art that began with ancient Native American rock art and culminated with Robert Smithson's spiral jetty on the Great Salt Lake's North Shore. She says that art doesn't always have to be in control of museums. You can do things that are art that are art that are way, way beyond the boundaries of the gallery. She says that that's one of the things I have enjoyed about the rise of land art in the 1960s. She says to welcome to the Welcome to the question that the humanities have struggled with for centuries. She says to her, the apparent deliberateness of the obelisk construction and placement on the landscape qualify as a piece of art. That's very interesting. The object is assembled from precision milled stainless steel, but it bears no inscriptions or other identifying features. 
according to Nick Street of Utah Department of Public Safety. He said that somebody would really have to do some planning and would have to have the will and desire to carry all the stuff, along with his cutting equipment. So somebody was absolutely determined. He said that the rock perfectly matches the... The triangular coal cut in the rock perfectly matches the dimension of the obelisk. He says that this thing is sturdy, and he would guess that it would have to be at least a foot and a half, if not more, if the monolith down inside of it. Sturdy? He said, as sturdy as the thing is, I would guess that it would have to have at least a foot and a half, if not more, of the monolith down inside of it. The other thing is it's perfectly plumbed. It's exactly 90 degrees to the surface and perfectly level on top, which is absolutely impressive. He says that it's not something that's thrown together accidental or done in a distracted moment. The way it's embedded in the rock is furthest thing away from that. There is really an enormously powerful dialogue between a person looking at it and thinking, which one of my fellow human beings did this and what is that person was thinking, feeling, dreaming, aspiring, and what message are we receiving from this? That is a pretty exciting trip to go on if you buy the ticket for that. I I agree. I think that's a really good thought experiment. One theory gaining traction is that the obelisk is the work of sculptor John McCracken. So I don't know who this guy is. You could click in the article and link and see what he does. One theory gaining traction is that the obelisk is the work of sculptor John McCracken or one of his students who may have installed it after the artist's death in 2011. David Zwerner, a prominent New York City art dealer who represents McCracken, suspects the object is connected to the artist who lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the end of his life. He says the gallery is divided on this and he believes it was definitely by John. Who would have known that in 2020, had yet another surprise for us, just when we thought we had seen it all. California-born McCracken was famous for his minimalist structures of geometrical precision. After the release of Kubrick's famous film, it is widely it was widely, though incorrectly, assumed that McCracken designed the monolith worshipped by the ape-like prehumans in the opening scene, according to his obituary. So I guess it's not actually a monolith. Utah's former state archaeologist, Kevin Jones, had pointed out that it's a misnomer. Monoliths are cut from a single piece of stone. Oh, how technical. If the object's discovery accomplishes anything, Limerick observed, it at least provides a diversion from the Trump presidency and the pandemic and the faltering economy. Oh, well, last time I checked, the Dow Jones is the highest it's ever been. So that's pretty interesting. During times, this is the article, of global trouble. The obelisk is a reminder that the world is still full of wonder. Wow, why'd they have to put that little thing in there, huh? That's pretty interesting. He's trying to get his brownie points. Anyhow, that's basically it. There's some really great pictures in here. There's even more information. And um, Limerick is hoping that the Bureau of Land Management will allow it to remain to continue challenging the public's imagination. What what an amazing story. So who was it? And is it's going to remain a mystery unless someone comes forward? I mean, they can assume and consider that maybe McCracken put it in there. I mean, it's really likely because it looks like it's something he may have done. But did he he have the tools and the abilities to do that? I don't know. So we're going to have to wait and see on that one. This week for our weekly topic, we're going to talk about something that I really want to talk about. There is this huge negative stigma um, attached to conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And it's really unfortunate because there are a lot of situations in which our government, others' governments, have undermined the people and conspired to either do harm or to profit off the suffering of others. 
One of these in particular that I wanted to bring up is Project Paperclip or Operation Paperclip. Now, according to the Central Intelligence Agency, I will link everything in the show notes. There's a lady named Annie Jacobson, and in 2014, she wrote a book called Operation Paperclip, The Secret Intelligence Program to Bring Nazi Scientists to America. So she says that, or actually, this this book is being reviewed by Jay Watkins in this particular piece. And he says that as World War II ended, the race was on with the Soviet Union to seize as many German scientists as possible in anticipation of the Cold War. The full story has remained elusive until now. Operation Paperclip by Annie Jacobson provides perhaps the most comprehensive up-to-date narrative available to the general public. Her book is detailed, highly readable, and she compiled extensive primary and secondary sources, tons of notes of bibliography, and many news sources. Among them, U.S. government records, President Clinton's Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act, German archival records, first-person accounts, memoirs, and letters. There's also a useful index in this book, and like just she she did a badass job. So she offers a detailed chronology of events related to Operation Paperclip. Basically the story, okay, I'm going to give you a brief overview. At the end of World War II, and we were coming into Germany and we were, you know, um, arresting people for their crimes. And at the same time, we had this crazy tension with Russia and we were at the beginning, I believe, of the Cold War. We took this opportunity to take their most a prestigious scientist and actually bring them and their families over and employ them to work at our on our bases, right? And so these people never paid for their crimes. In fact, one of them was appointed like director of NASA and he became really integral in our rocket advancements. So some people are like this is crazy, there's an ethical dilemma here. We we employed these criminals, we basically paid them and took care of their families all in exchange for an upper hand on Russia. So that's basically what it is. A lot of people said that it was just a, you know, conspiracy theory, but they were not able to actually not disprove this. This is actually what happened. So she gives a chronology of events. And there's there's 89 individuals profiled. And the book is a compelling work with interesting historical and personal revelations. For example... One of the most notorious cases of WMD proliferation occurred on the 15th of May of 1945 when the German U-234 submarine bound for Japan was captured off Newfoundland by the USS Sutton. The U-boat carried Dr. Heinz Schlick, director of naval test fields at Kiel, and the cargo included plans for the HS-293 glider bomb, V-1 glide bomb, which was the forerunner to cruise missiles, V-2 rocket, forerunner to the Scud missile, Me-262 fighter aircraft, the first combat jet fighter, low low observable submarine designs, lead line boxes filled with 1,200 pounds of uranium oxide, a key ingredient of atomic bombs, Schleck, who claimed to be an electronic warfare expert, became a prisoner at Fort Meade, Maryland. Sarin was produced at Dihern Firth. Dihern Firth later fell into Russian hands. This name derives from the initials of its developers, Gerard Schrader and Otto Ambrose, 
from the famous IG Farben Chemical Company, maker of the killing gases used at the concentration camps, and from the names of two German army officers. Schrader tells the story of inventing Talbon, a nerve agent named after the English word taboo. The Germans called it 991 after their, de- after their defeat at Stalingrad, seriously considering used it, using it on the Russians. So Henry Wallace, former vice president and secretary of commerce, believed the scientists' ideas could launch a new civil- civilian industries and produce jobs, which is true. It actually did. The German scientists developed a synthetic rubber used in our automobile tires, non-running hosiery, so our pantyhose lady. The Nazis helped us with good non-running pantyhose. The ear thermometer, electromagnetic tape, and miniaturized electrical components, just to name a few. Werner Braun, von Braun is who the guy I was telling you ended up being director of NASA. He's well known to those who remember the Apollo moon landing. During the Ford administration, von Braun was almost awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom until one of Ford's senior advisors, David Gergen, objected to the Nazi past. So lesser well-known is another 120 fellow German scientists, engineers, and technicians developed the Saturn V launch vehicle, or that the launch operations center at Cape Canaveral, Florida, was headed by Kurt Debus, an ardent Nazi. The vertical assembly building, bigger in volume than the Pentagon and almost as tall as the Washington Monument, was designed by Bernard Tessman, former facilities designer at the German Missile Launch Facility at Penemund. I don't know if I got that right. (laughs) So other prominent Nazis were Dr. Huberturus Strughold, who played an important role in space medicine by developing spacesuits and other life support systems. In June 1948, he put a rhesus monkey named Albert into the pressurized nose cone of a V-2 rocket in a pressurized nose cone. Okay, so he put this poor little monkey in a pressurized nose cone on a rocket. I don't know what happened to that monkey. I'm going to have to find out. General Reinhard Galen, former head of Nazi intelligence operations against the Soviets, was hired by the U.S. Army and later by the CIA to operate 600 ex-Nazi agents in the Soviet zone of occupied Germany. In 1948, CIA director Roscoe Hillencotter assumed control of the so-called Galen Organization. And then we have German biologist Dr. Kurt Blum, who was hired to develop offensive and defensive capabilities to counter Soviet biological warfare activities. So in 1949, the CIA created the Office of Scientific Intelligence. Its first director was Dr. Willard Makla traveled to Germany to set up a special program to interrogate Soviet spies. The CIA believed the Russians had developed mind control programs and wanted to know how U.S. spies would hold up against this capability if caught. Now, this is when they created the Manchurian Candidate through behavioral modification. This is when Operation Bluebird was born, which is Bluebird, we talked about this, was MKUltra, you know, the mind control program. That was the research activity experimenting on behavioral engineering of humans. So the the author of this book who compiled all this brilliant data to prove that our government was complicit in covering up war crimes of war criminals, she understandably questions the morality of the decision to hire Nazi SS scientists. She balances her judgment with an understanding of the perceived threat of the Soviet Union under Stalin and the communist dialectical determination to prepare for total war with the West. So, you know, fear make people do crazy things. She also says the, the Soviets similarly captured and used German scientists for their own defense programs. That side of the story is not covered in this book. And that is something that I have heard that pretty much like half of German Germany's scientists went to the Soviets and half came over here and Project Paperclip was our 
our moment of grasping at how many of their brilliant minds that we could possibly get to get an upper hand over the Soviets. I also read this article by USA Today that gets into, you know, it's called Fact Check. Nazi scientists were brought to work for the U.S. through Operation Paperclip. And it goes through in, in the fact check way that they do to determine whether or not that this is true. And, of course, it's true. It says that around 1945, these German scientists started arriving. And not all the men recruited were Nazis or SS officers, but the most prominent and valued among them were having worked either directly with Hitler or leading members of the Nazi party, such as Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Göring. Werner von Braun, a rocket engineer, was instrumental in developing the first U.S. ballistic missile, the Redstone, and later the Saturn V rocket while serving as a director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. As a Nazi dialogue and a member of the SS, he traveled to the Buchenwald concentration camp where he had handpicked slaves to work for him as laborers. There is also Hubertus Stroghold, which we talked about, the psychologist or physiologist and medical researcher. He actually headed the German Air Force Institute of Aviation Medicine, and those were the ones of those crazy Nazi scientist experimentations on um, the inmates at Dachau concentration camp. He claimed ignorance of this activity until after the war when he appeared among this list of 95 doctors in an October 1942 conference discussing their findings. The U.S., he was a chief scientist of the Aerospace Medical Division at Brooks Air Force and had since been credited as the father of space medicine. And we've got Walter Schreiber, Schreiber, a former Nazi general who oversaw inhumane medical experiments involving bioweapons. So we're talking Zyklon B, we're talking nerve gases, we're talking murderers of thousands of people. And he worked for various government entities before finally settling in Texas at the Air Force School of Aviation Medicine. Schreiber would later serve as a witness during the Nuremberg trials, and him, von Braun, Strugholt, and the rest of their fellow Nazis brought to the U.S. would never be held accountable for their own atrocities. It remained a secret throughout much of the Cold War, but I'd like to put in a little caveat when I was doing my research. Google actually says, and it cites a New York Times article, that it was actually revealed in December of 1946 and that this information has been out for 74 years. You know, who are you going to believe, pretty much? Now... History Channel does a really, really cute little article about this, real brief, and it talks about how American and British organizations pretty much scoured Germany for military, scientific, and technological development research. They were looking for stuff that the Nazis were working on because they knew that they had they had some pretty high-tech stuff. They, okay, so the CIA, I do believe... Um, develop or got this group together called Combined Intelligence Objective Subcommitting, COS, C-I-O-S, and they were confiscating war-related documents and materials and interrogating scientists while the German research facilities were seized by Allied forces. They recovered something in a toilet, and it was an Osenberg list, a catalog of scientists and engineers that had been put to work for the Third Reich. Operation Paperclip was originally called Operation Overcast. I think we already said that. They, you know, brought over for the Cold War. The, the prog- program was run by a newly formed Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency. So how many agencies and, uh, you know, little committees and departments do they pop up to, to do their dirty work? So obviously, they, you know, they helped America's arsenal of rockets and our chemical weapons. And we ended up using those, I do believe, in Japan, but I could be wrong about that. I guess officially, 
Pre President Harry Truman sanctioned the operation, but forbade the agency from recruiting any Nazi members or active Nazi supporters. Nevertheless, the officials of the JIOA, which is the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, and the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, who's the forerunner of the CIA, these they bypassed this directive by our own president. And we're eliminating or whitewashing incriminating evidence of possible war crimes from the scientists' records, believing their intelligence to be crucial to the country's post-war efforts. So what would you call that, folks? Would you call that a conspiracy theory to do what they wanted, to um, work around the rules? Pretty much. BBC News does a really great article about Project Paperclip, and they said... They talked, they, they got into, you know, who Von Braun's associates were and, and how infamous they were and, and their culpability and what happened in Germany during that time. Alice, author Rudolph, and he was chief operations director at Nordhausen, where 20,000 slave laborers died producing V-2 missiles. They led the team which built the Saturn V rocket, we said that, and described, he was described as 100% Nazi, dangerous type. Then we got Kurt DeBus, rocket launch specialist, another SS officer. His report stated he should be interned as a menace to the security of the Allied forces, but we hired him. And then Hubertus Strughold, which we mentioned before, he was called the father of space medicine, we said that, and designed NASA's onboard life support systems, which is pr pretty awesome. Some of his subordinates conducted the human experiments at Dachau and Auschwitz, where inmates were frozen, put into low-pressure chambers, often dying in the process. These men were all cleared to work for the U.S., and their crimes were covered up, and their backgrounds bleached, and they paid them top dollar, and protected their families. So the paperclip, which secured the new details in their personnel files, gave the whole operation its name. So that was a conspiracy to add a paperclip to the manila folder in which their information was so they could whitewash these people's pass, so they could be cleared to have security clearance in the, for the U.S. government. You know, we've got all this new techno technology that they gave us and man they were so much further advanced than we were that we we gained a huge leg up with them you know losing the war so you know they consider this was a huge success and many will it, it quote says many will prefer to remember the thousands who died to send mankind into space what does that tell you i mean that is just probably one of the grossest things i've ever read now around the same time we had this thing called Operation High Jump. It was officially titled the United States Navy Antarctic Developments Program. This is 1946 to 1947. It was a naval operation organized by Admiral Byrd. He was Officer Tax Task Force 68. They commenced 26 August 1946 and ended late February 1947. This task force included 4,700 men, 13 ships, 33 aircraft, and their primary mission was to establish the Antarctic Research Base, Little America. Now, according to the U.S. Navy report of this operation, their objectives were, one, training personnel and testing equipment in frigid conditions, two, consolidating and extending the United States' sovereignty over the largest pr practicable area of the Antarctic continent, which publicly denied as a goal even before the expedition ended, and three, determining the feasibility of establishing, maintaining, and utilizing bases in the Antarctic and investigating possible base sites. Okay, that's where the, the rumor comes in that the Nazis already had a base in Antarctica. And Operation High Jump 
part of its objective was to go down there and to see what they had going on so they could put the kibosh on that. And then number four, developing techniques for establishing, maintaining, and utilizing air bases on ice with particular attention to later applicability of such techniques to operations of interior Greenland, where conditions are comparable to those in the Antarctic. Now, there is some rumor that there is a base, I don't know, I think it's called Thule or something, the northwest coast of Greenland. You could definitely look into that. It was definitely connected to this, and Admiral Byrd is also pretty famous, we'll probably talk about that another time, for flying over the Arctic Circle in which he experienced some really crazy, strange stuff. We will definitely talk about that maybe next week. Number five, amplifying existing stores of knowledge of electromagnetic, geological, geographic, hydrographic, and meteorological, meteorological propagation conditions in the area. Number six, supplementary objectives of the Nanook expedition, a smaller equivalent. Now, what were the Nazis doing down there? And how did they have this high-end technology. Were they really that smarter than us? Now, the rumors are is that they had some help from a certain alien species called the Pleiadians Nordics. Sometimes they're referred to as the Tall Whites, but I do not believe that the Tall Whites and the Nordics are actually the same. Nordics look more human. The Tall Whites look more more alien-ish. Admiral Byrd discusses lessons learned from this operation in this interview of International News Service held aboard the expedition's command ship, Mount Olympus. The interview, uh, interview appeared in a March 1947 edition of the Chilean newspaper El Mercurio and read in part as follows, quote, Admiral Richard Byrd, Richard E. Byrd, warned today that the United States should adopt measures of protection against the possibility of invasion of the country by hostile planes coming from the polar regions. The admiral explained that he was not trying to scare anyone, but the cruel reality is that in this case of a new war, the United States could be attacked by planes, planes flying over one or both poles. The statement was made as a part of a recapitulation of his own polar experience in an exclusive interview with International News Service. Talking about the recently completed expedition, Byrd said that the most important result of his observations and discoveries is the potential effect that they have in relation to the security of the United States. The fantastic speed in which the world is shrinking, recalled Admiral, Admiral is one of the most important lessons learned during his recent Antarctic exploration. I have to warn my compatriots that the time has ended when we were able to take refuge in our isolation and rely on certainty that the distances, the oceans, and the poles were a guarantee of safety. Now, after the operation ended, they did a follow-up called Operation Windmill. That's when we, they returned, or we returned to the area to provide ground truthing to aerial photography of high jump. There was also a financed private operation in the same territory until 1948. Well, that's, we don't know about that. There were other Antarctic expeditions, and interested persons were allowed to send letters with enclosed envelopes to the base where commemorative caches were added to their enclosures which were then returned to the senders. In the media, the documentary about the expedition called The Secret Land was filmed entirely by military photographers. It features Chief of Naval Operations, Fleet Admiral, Admiral Chester Nimitz, in a scene where he's discussing Operation High Jump with Admirals Byrd and Cruzen. The film reenacts scenes of critical events, such as shipboard damage control and Admiral Byrd throwing items out of an airplane to lighten to avoid crashing into a mountain. It won a 1948 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. We know that they keep things classified, and we know that for our own national security, we got to keep those things classified. But where where do we draw the line? 
That's what I want to know. Where do we draw the line? Do we forgive people of their war crimes? Do we just totally forget the fact that they murdered a bunch of people and that they were complicit in probably some of the worst crimes ever conducted on humanity? Different article in which I had to actually click to the like 10th page um, in my Google search. I wanted to see kind of what people were saying and what the, what the, the buzz is on the street. And in this article from factsorfacts.com, called Mysterious Antarctica. It talks about Hitler's Germany was extremely interested in Antarctica beginning in the 1930s. So they had been out there for a good 15 years already. Many historians attribute this to a cultist background of the upper echelons of the Nazi party, some of whom were members of the so-called Fool Society, which is also like reminiscent of the name of that base or um, region in Greenland, which we talked about. In studying translations of Old Tibetan, Indian, and Greek texts, they came to believe that our earth is hollow and inhabited within. The Ultima Thule is supposed to have been the name of the capital city of the continent Hyperborea, older than Atlantis and Lemuria. According to Thule texts, the Hyperboreans were highly technological and socially advanced. The continent was located in the Norwegian Sea and sunk over a progression of an ice age. During this catastrophe, the Hyperboreans dug large tunnels through the Earth crust using giant machines and settled under what is today the Himalayas. It is said that they named their new kingdom Agarda or Agarti and is the capital city Shambhala. The current Dalai Lama, as well as lamas from Mongolia and Tibet, claim to have known this subterranean kingdom along with the Lord of the World living there. Over a millennia, that the subterranean kingdom has supposedly spread below the Earth's entire surface with giant centers under the Sahara the Mato Grosso in Brazil, the Yucatan in Mexico, Mount Shasta in Northern California, and many others. The members of the Thule Society hope to make contact with these fabled inner earth civilizations, sending out various expeditions. So I do not put it past these guys going out there looking for these inner earth civilizations or trying to contact some kind of advanced civilization. Um, Their belief was influenced by old text, clandestine knowledge of secret societies, and through observations of the law of nature where they found hollow bodies everywhere, in cells, the ovum, atoms, and comets. So here we have is a little bit of symbolism, and in which, you know, where where there is one thing, there's going to be that thing and, and other things. I'm not sure if that's maybe that's a thinking problem that could very well be, but this is what it says. Even the Hermetics helped to convince them that the earth must be a hollow body with their law as as, bu- as above, so below, as within, so without. The macrocosm as is as the microcosm and vice versa. So is that a universal principle? Is that something that we we could apply like scientifically? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I'm sure there's some flawed thinking somewhere in there, but we'd like to believe so, right? So supposedly their beliefs were further supported by odd reports from polar explorers. For example, the discovery of a warming wind north of the 76th parallel and the fact that birds and other animals are drawn in the direction of the pole, although it's allegedly cold and inhospitable. They found gray and colored snow, which revealed volcanic ash and flower pollen. Along with giant animals frozen in the ice, which were identified as mammoths, their bellies full of fresh grass. There's also reports of Arctic explorers having seen a diffused second sun. In the middle of November 1938, for the German Antarctica expedition, this is when Admiral Byrd arrived in Hamburg as a guest of the Polar Shipping Association to present his Antarctica film with Byrd at the South Pole. Of the 82 people in the audience, 54 were future members of the ship's crew, and they were there for training purposes. 
he had all but flown over the South Pole in 1929. So Admiral Byrd was already pretty hip to what was going on over the Poles as the Nazis were freaking setting up. I guess just a few weeks later, in 1938, in December, the MS Schwachenland uh, aircraft carrier and catapult ship under the command of Alfred Rick. Richer set sail for the Nazis' Antarctic expedition, reaching Antarctica in January of 1939. This ship was able to send 10-ton aircraft into flight, and the pilots flew over a territory of about 600,000 square kilometers in northern Antarctica. They photographed nearly 350,000 square kilometers. The aircraft discharged aluminum rods bearing swastika flags every 25 kilometers and named the region they had claimed New Schwabenland. After the war, this region was annexed by the Norwegians and renamed Queen Maudland. There are numerous contradictory assumptions with regards to the true goal of the expedition. The obvious German misinformation propagandized by Goring claimed that the expedition served to secure a food supply for the German people in the event of war and waters around the Antarctic with teeming with whales. So I think I have heard that this was going to be like their their new, um, where they were going to set up, where they, everybody was going to move to flee Germany. Now, these missions, a lot of them are, you know, rumor. There's a lot of speculation versus, you know, probably nine to one or nine, yeah, nine to one um, speculation versus information. It is known for certain, though, that there was an increasing frequency of German U-boats began setting off the direction of, from the South Pole in that point in order to carry out missions that remain secret even till now. There are two statements from Carl von Donitz that are riddles, the first of which reads, quote, my U-boat operators discovered a real earthly paradise, end quote. He made a second statement in 1942 at the height of the German-Russian War, and it is no less mysterious. He says, quote, Germany's U-boat fleet can be proud that they've built an impenetrable force for the Fuhrer on the other side of the world, end quote. What was he talking about? How come we don't have any knowledge of this base? And if we were recruiting these Nazi scientists and taking taking all their shit because we won the war, what did we take from them in Antarctica? And why don't we know about it? Russian serviceman Vladimir Vassiljou says if the Germans had wanted to build a secret base or zones that had extraterritorial status, the polar zones, including Antarctica, constituted ideal territory. Now, let's let's go into the unexplained reasons for the... Okay, so Admiral Byrd's Operation High Jump was terminated early, and they never gave a real reason. I guess it terminated a couple months early, and their fleet left really quickly. There are rumors that there was a ton of a loss of life, that they were being bombed, they, they were being, like, their ass handed to them for some reason. And there was this journalist that was on the expedition called um, Lee Van Otta. He wrote that Admiral Byrd declared today that it was imperative for the United States to initiate immediate defense measures against hostile airplanes originally originating from polar regions, end quote. Or quote again, he emphasized that it is important to remain in alarm status and be vigilant along the entire ice belt, which is the last bulwark against an invasion. So there was assault on the expedition, but they didn't talk about it. So what people think was it was an assault by flying saucers that surfaced out of the water and freaking kicked their asses. Of course, you know, if if flying saucers are shooting out of the ocean and killing their their forces, they're not going to want to tell people this, especially considering like, you know, they sure as hell didn't want to say anything during... Um, what was that called in New Mexico? Shit, I can't believe it. It'll come to me. Supposedly, a fighter pilot named John Sayerson, he was a witness and crew member, 
and he described a dramatic battle of February 26, 1947, with the words, quote, The things popped out of the water like they were being chased by the devil and flew at such high speeds between the masts that the antennae between the wind eddy ripped. Some airplanes that were able to get into the air off the Casablanca were hit moments later by unfamiliar blasts that came from the flying saucers and crashed next to the ship. I was on deck at the Casablanca at the time and was totally taken aback. These things did not make a single sound as they flew between our ships and spit deadly fire. Suddenly, the torpedo boat destroyer Matic, which was about 10 cable lengths less than two miles away from us, went up in flames and began to sink. Rescue boats from other ships were sent despite the danger. The nightmare lasted about 20 minutes. When the flying saucers dove again under the water, we began to count our losses. They were appalling. Why, you know, during the Cold War, during the end of World War II, would our government actually tell us that we got our ass kicked by some flying saucers that flew out of the ocean? Probably not. And so the whole lesson in this weekly topic is, is that there's a lot of weird shit going on with our government. And they're constantly, constantly conspiring to do one thing or another, whether it's for our national security's benefit or whether it's for their own monetary benefit. It still remains to be seen, but just keeping a good eye out for, you know, people, if they tell you something, they said they were witness to something, why would they put themselves out there just to throw confusion and manipulation in the mix? Especially if they don't have any agenda whatsoever. They're just trying to tell people what happened. We have such a bad attitude towards the whistleblower's in our culture today, before they were praised, before they were seen as heroes and amazing people. But now they're condemned. They're called heretics. They are, smear campaigns are run on them. If they do not say what, you know, the, the all almighty wants them to say, then, then they're going to be condemned and it's the end of it for them. I thought that was a really important thing to talk about. Let's reminisce about what went on with Project paperclip and why nobody talks about that and what went on during around the same time during operation high jump and admiral Byrd's expeditions and why why is it that antarctica is such a mystery still today i want to know what you guys think about this because i think it's all really weird it's fascinating but it's it's enraging at the same time because the amount of shit they got away with is just unbelievable and the amount of shit that they justify with um you know the a sense of security you know that you know we have to do this really unethical thing in order for us to be safe is such a line of bullshit so that's what i got for you this week's weekly topic this week's mailbag is yeah the car has to drive by right at that very moment isn't that lovely it's some good old what is that called? Um, that freaking weird, where they freaking eat food in front of the microphone? ASMR. That's what that's, that's like. The fucking motorcycle. ASMR. Okay, so this week's mailbag's a little different. I've got a couple things for you. And I had to resort to the internet to find stuff because nobody's sending me anything in my mailbag. Reminder for everyone, all your scary stories, keep them like honest and true. Like we want to really figure things out, not just make up stories. But if you've got a really good fictional story, just send it anyways and just let me know it's fictional. Let me know if you want me to use your name or not. That email address is fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. So this week we're going to, I'm going to read you a little story. Because I think it is pretty much the story of 
every single person that's had like a consistent haunting in their house. And this is in a compilation of a bunch of these really tiny short stories. So I wanted to share this before I got into what I really wanted to talk about. It's called Please Stop Moving the Kitchen Table. My house was fraught with weird stuff happening when we first moved in. The kitchen table would move overnight 12 to 8 inches. My keys will disappear and show up in the weirdest places like my quilt trunk. My son Christopher went into the basement and things came flying off the shelf at him. He also saw someone riding, walking on our wraparound porch once, but no one was there. The most obvious one was a few years ago. Twice this happened. I was sweeping the kitchen floor. The door to the porch started shaking uncontrollably. It was like someone was trying to open the door without turning the knob. It lasted about 15 seconds. Keep in mind, this is a wraparound porch completely enclosed. I knew it was bad because my dogs, who will bark at a butterfly flying past the window, all looked up at the door and stepped back. Both times it happened, I was doing the same thing about the same time at night. By the way, as a side note, I walked into the kitchen table one night while going to the bathroom. It was just... It was not the first time I walked into the kitchen table because it was moved. So I just said, please stop moving the kitchen table. And it never moved again. Barbara. So that, you know, people say that if you tell them to go away, they'll go away. So that's a pointer in case you're having like poltergeist activity or something's trying to scare you. Next. Okay. So this week's mailbag, I put the links to both places where I got the story from because there's a ton of stories in there. You might want to check it out. And they're really short and pretty stinking good. Then we have this video of this young man and there's a link. So go watch it, but you have to watch it at one minute and 28 seconds because it's 30 minutes long of some dude on a live video on Facebook or Instagram. I'm not sure which, but at one minute, 28 seconds, you see what he's talking about. So he's standing on one side of the door. He's smoking a cigarette. He's freaking out. And he's like, "There's." I took a picture on the other side of this door. I'm going to show y'all that this is my yard and that I, you know, I'm not faking this. And so he opens the door and he puts the camera out there and it's pointed at this wood line where it's really dark. And there's this telephone pole right there. Well, you see something move in the background next to the telephone pole and you get a really good idea of what the scale is of this thing. I don't think this dude faked it and I want to know what the hell that is. So if anybody's done anything about, you know, checking the digital integrity of this guy's claim, has it gone anywhere? I'm not really sure, but go over and check this out because it's mind blowing. It's probably some of the best footage. I don't know how it could have been hoaxed. So go look at that. The video is really funny and it's scary as shit. So you pretty much, you see a dog man back there. So either he's really good at what he does or, or they really, really caught something on tape. That's your mailbag this week. Send me some fucking mail. Fringe with benefits at protonmail.com. This week's guest spot shout out goes to JP Sears. I don't know if anyone is familiar with this guy or whatnot, but he is absolutely fantastic. So let's, let's talk about who JP Spears is. Sears. (laughs) JP Sears. He's an American life coach. Oh, this is according to Google, by the way, and an internet comedian. And that's how I met him, or I didn't meet him, but I met him virtually. Um, No, he doesn't really know who I am or anything, but I do follow him and he's funny as hell. He does a lot of satirical videos about veganism, Uh, new agey stuff and social justice now and he's like really jumped on the rona comedy and so i really suggest that you go over and follow him on all your social medias 
He is actually like just under a year younger than me, and he's really, really funny. Below I put his website, awakenwithjp.com. He's got all kinds of stuff, but go go give him a like if you don't already follow him already, and don't let what he says upset you because it's all comedy, and if you can't hang, I don't even know what to tell you. I don't know, maybe it's just being an 80s kid, you have a tougher skin than some of these other youngsters, but oh, did I, don't, don't let me get you mad. Okay, so go follow J.P. Sears, because he's funny. This week on Inward Survival's School of Magic, we're going to be talking about fallacious reasoning, and I put below a website where you can go download this poster that has all of these biases in which I'm going to discuss today. I'm going to start with just a few because we've only got a few minutes, but we're going to start with the Barnum effect. This is when you see personal specifics in vague statements and we use our innate innate need to find connections in things in which there maybe are not connections in. So it's when we will take a statement and then we will interpret them in a way that seems specific or personal. Maybe, you know, take for example, somebody says something to someone and they take it as a personal attack. This could be considered the Barnum effect, especially when no attack was warranted. It was, it was just misinterpreted, basically. We also have the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is one of my favorites. It's the more you know and the less confident you're likely to be. And any one of us that has gone to school, especially in the sciences, knows that the more we learn, the less we realize we know, or the more we realize the less we know, pretty much. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Confirmation biases. This is a way of, for us to look for w- ways to justify our existing beliefs. For example, this poster says, think of your ideas and beliefs as software you're actively trying to find problems with rather than things to be defended. And it's basically we, you know, we make new information to fit our existing narratives and preconceptions. And then we dismiss information that might be imperative, but since it doesn't fit into our point of view, it's not, it's irrelevant in our minds. Next, we have anchoring. This is when the first thing that you judge influences the judgment of all that follows. And because our minds are associative in nature, when we receive information, it helps us in the future determine which choices we're going to be making and and our later perceptions. So our experiences will will affect our perception. This poster says to be especially mindful of this bias during financial negotiations. And I could totally relate to this one. That brings us, you know, that's going to segue right into the next fallacy called the sunk cost fallacy, which is something I've experienced myself. It's just not having a whole lot of knowledge in finance, getting myself into contracts that were not beneficial for me and cost me a lot of money because I couldn't just you know, opt out later. This is when you irrationally cling to things that have already cost you something. This also could be kind of like a beaten wife syndrome. We will cling to these men that are abusive and horrible and steal our money and beat us up and treat us like shit. That is basically sunk cost fallacy when we stick around. This is basically when we've invested our time, money, or emotion into something, and it hurts us to let it go because we've invested so much time. This particular way of thinking distorts our our later on judgment and causes us to make pretty shitty decisions later on. This poster tells you that you, for you to 
pretty much ground yourself back into objectivity, you want to ask if you if you would have um, would you still make that same investment today that you made ten years ago or however long ago? And what would you tell a friend to do in that situation? That's another way you can ground yourself into being objective. And then the last one is the backfire effect. And that's when your core beliefs are challenged, but it causes you to believe more strongly. This is when your ideas are attacked upon by somebody. It's, um, it makes you believe even harder that it's a motivated reasoning which causes us to reinforce our beliefs. We can't accept particular facts and disconfirming evidence. So this, this, it's really hard to explain, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about. When you try to, you try to jerk somebody loose from this really stringent way of thinking, but it really, really, like it says, backfires on you. This comes with a quote, and I hope you guys go look at this poster because I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep on with this thing. There's so much information on it. This quote by Mark Twain. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I think that's a really great way to end this segment. And we'll talk more about that next week as we move on with our fallacious reasoning. This week's stoic thought comes from Richard Feynman. You should go look at, I I put a... A website to go check out and why this guy's famous is just unbelievable real quick let's talk about what he said so he was a Nobel Prize winning American physicist known to, for his contributions to quantum physics quantum electrodynamics and particle physics as well as quantum computing and nanotechnology this guy is a pioneer he said I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics end quote That's not your stoic thought. The one that he said that really resonated with me is, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. End quote. I want to leave you with that this week. You go out and you kick ass. Have a good one.